He's slick with sweat and blood, some of it his, some of it mine. And I'm losing grip on the gun. And as it came up, it basically, I saw it coming up in my face again. And I drew and I uh, we punched my gun out and I fired once. And he spun, like instantly. And as he was spinning, when his body was turning, I see the gun coming up on the other side. And I saw a second one, which also strikes him. Where'd you hit him? The first one was point blank in the middle of his chest, perforated his, I think his aorta. The, so that was uh, a fatal point shot, point. probably. He was going to die from that no matter yes, what. Yes. Yeah. blew his, but I don't know that. Right. And the other thing is, and it was one of the things that had to be explained to the grand jurors, because when they hear multiple shots, they don't understand how quickly one comes on in the back of the other. True. The, the two shots, and I actually demonstrated in the grand jury. That quick. And that was the end of the gunfight. We're back in the palatial estates of Ossining, New York, our studio here. Uh, one more time for a police off the cuff with my partner in law enforcement, Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill? Oh, man, I'm so excited about today. Great guest. We have a, an amazing guest. Yeah, I'm excited, too. How are you feeling? Uh, you just had... Yeah, I had a, for the, our audience out there, our audience of thousands. Uh-huh. I just had a new hip put in a month ago, so I'm a little Congratulations. bit Congratulations. Yeah, thanks, man. I heard that I will set off the uh, alarm at the airport they gave me a card for that, actually. Oh, actually, yeah. Really? Show them. <laughs> you just have to give them a heads up. Yeah, tell them, all right, I have, a, I have some yet. metal inside me, so, you know. All right, I'm well, I'm happy. Yeah, you're doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing much better, yeah. All right, good. Uh, we got a, a special guest here, so I'm not going to hold back on it. Uh, before I, uh, let me just give you an idea. In 1992, Nasty Nas, later known as the rapper Nas, drops his debut single titled, Halftime. On that record, he has a line that goes, because when it's my time to go, I wait for God with the 4-4. And the biters can't come near. And yo, go to hell to the foul cop who shot Garcia. Our guest today is the foul cop who shot Garcia. <laughs> what's up, Michael O'Keefe? Hey, what's going on, guys? Really Michael O'Keefe is a, is a former NYPD. Uh, you were a detective? Yeah, I was a first-grade detective. A first-grade detective, and he's also an author. Uh, he's written the book Shot to Pieces, and you have a brand-new book out now. It's, uh, I actually have a short novella that's available on Amazon called uh, Not Very Deep Enough, but I'm probably going to drop a book of short stories uh, first or second week of June. All right, that's so great, this man. So this is a true renaissance, man. All you cops out there with those uh, uh, short arms and deep pockets, just go on <laughs> Amazon and buy his book, Shot to Pieces. Support one of our own, all right? This is a real author. I know every cop thinks they're an author, but this guy really is an author. So I'm eight chapters book. in, and uh, I'm loving the book. It's a I gotta fascinating say. book. But before we start, uh, we jump ahead with with how you got to being an author. Um, let's let's start off with uh, that 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 you were memorialized in a rap record. I think Nas is in the rap hall of fame, uh, the hall of uh, rock and roll hall of fame. If not, I got, he will be soon. I got to be honest with you, Mark. You're way more impressed with that than I am. <laughs> well, I mean, if you really think about like pop culture and um, like history, you know, that you're more memorialized in this record that uh, it basically is telling you a little piece of the time. There's, there was an anger in the streets. Let's go back. Uh, before we even get to the to heights, you were almost on, on the job six years when that happened, right? Yeah, almost six years, exactly. How old were you? 29. 29 years old. Okay. So you, you're working in the 3-4? 3-4. And you know, you got to paint a little bit of a picture of the 3-4 in the what, 90s. Yeah, it's, it was the 90s, right? It, it was the old 3-4. The 1990 to 3 4 had 129 murders because the 3-4 was two precincts. It's the 3-4 and, as we know now, the 3-3. Three, three. So it was a huge geographical area. And it also, this was the crack wars, right? Yeah. It was the, uh, and the wars up there were really for the turf. It wasn't uh, the the crack users. It was the crack sellers that were, were killing. We're talking each other, about right? was it July seventh, nineteen ninety two? No, July third. July third, nineteen ninety two. I'm in the police academy. We got sworn in on July, on June thirtieth that night, uh, the midnight class. So on my my third day in the academy, um, we get notified that we might be on. Uh, we're on standby. To, for the riots in Washington Heights. I ain't ready for this shit. We don't, we don't know I'm nothing. A, I'm an academy kid. <laughs> we don't know nothing about anything. And um, 
I feel like we're uh, taking this story out of place. You're six years on the job. You're working in an anti-crime at the time? Yeah. All right. For, and- all, for all listeners that might not know what anti-crime is, in New York City, every precinct has what's called an anti-crime unit, which works in plain clothes. There's usually a supervisor and six cops. They have two or three unmarked cars, and they do self-initiated work of uh, street crime, shootings, robberies, uh, violence on the street. They target that. They're not specifically responding to radio runs. They're self-initiated. And that's what anti-crime is. And this precinct that you work in is predominantly Dominicans. Uh, yeah, it's largely Dominican, but there's a, there's a mix of uh, African-Americans uh, on a couple of blocks on the south end. There's the, uh, the old Irish up in Inwood. Uh, but for the most part, the heart of the precinct was almost exclusively Dominican. And um, when you see, when you talked about crack, but there's regular cocaine, a lot of cocaine sales up there too, right? At the time in the 90s, they were actually, the most of their business, the, the heavy dealers, the cartels, uh, was powder cocaine. You could literally, without getting out of your car, pull up to the corner of 162nd Street and St. Nicholas Avenue, hand over $17,000 and drive away with a kilo of cocaine. You didn't even have, you didn't even have to tap your brakes. It was insane. Dealing kilos in the street. In the street. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, right? Like a cheese line. Yeah, not even... Not even and where were the most of the uh, customers coming from? New Jersey? You saw those Jersey plates? You got a lot of Jersey, you got a lot of Connecticut, you got a lot of upstate plates. Pretty uh-huh. much, Washington Heights is kind of a nexus to pretty much well, the whole the, eastern seaboard. You have the George so, Washington Bridge yeah. bringing people in from Jersey. Mm-hmm. You have the uh, 95, which is bringing people in from Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Triborough Bridge, which uh, will, will bring you in from Queens. Yeah. And also the 59th Street Bridge, or you could just head up You come right down to Deegan from upstate. Drive. Yeah. It's like a hub. And then not only do location. you get in, and not only can you get there, but you can also get out real quick. So you're not driving through two or three miles of uh, roads trying to get back onto a highway. As soon as you get your, your goods, you jump right back, right back on the highway. Yeah. So it was 17 grand back then for, for a key? Seven, 116th Street? 17K. 162nd Street. Uh, I'm half Dominican, uh, and my, I still have family there on 180th and Broadway. So uh, I'm very connected to this story. I mean, we've had Ralph Friedman in here, and we had um, Tommy Kennedy... And they both talked about uh, police shootings and their involvement in it. And, uh, you know, uh, they're fascinating stories. But for some reason, uh, talking to you, I feel like, like I'm connected more to it because I know that neighborhood so well. Um, and, and tell us what it was like to work in that neighborhood, 1992. Well, I thought it was a great neighborhood to work in. Um, you know, you hear cops talk about... Uh, I work in a shithole. The 3-4 was never a shithole. It was the most violent precinct in the city, but the people were clean, the buildings were clean, the streets were clean. It's a good place to get shot, but it was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a shithole. You could eat, you could shop. Yeah. You had all your banking facilities on Broadway. Were there any pretty girls there? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble. Yeah. The, the, it's crazy, right? It's yeah, it's hot extraordinarily, extraordinarily beautiful. Dominicana, Colombiana, beautiful Dominican girls. You got girls. Uh, then, you know that area too was it was. Um, my parents came here in uh, in 1964, so the neighborhood, like my mother was from Czech, Czech Republic, and my father was Dominican. And but you also had like uh, my uncle's wife was Greek. You had a lot of Greeks there. You had Irish there. A couple of them still remain. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, like you said, and there was some uh, African American blocks. So the the neighborhood was kind of mixed. Uh, it was pretty nicely mixed up. Yeah, was, you know, you had a little bit of everything. Yeah. So, but you mentioned that that you can get shot and killed there. Yeah. Well, at the time, uh, this is we're talking about basically at night when the, the drug dealing starts. Yeah, you can get it in the middle of the day, too. Really? I was on uh, I was actually on a DOA on 160th Street when I was a rookie, and there were two homicides up the block before 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, and I'm like, I, you I'm on a fixer. I'm on a fixer. I can't leave. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, you hear the screams and the shots up the block. Uh-huh. So I'm just putting over a script as they're fleeing. 
Like, and you're sitting on a DOA, yeah. so yeah, that's yeah. a crime scene, right? And then I complained that the detective that responded, Sammy Gribben, was actually my training detective when I was a rookie in NSU in Midtown. And I complained that you know, I'm stuck on a fucking DOA and I could have gone up the block and made two homicide cops. Right. He says, hey, you want to be a gunfighter? These are the dues. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> all right, Sammy. That's right. Yeah. So, but, but most of these, these murders are drug-related. They were back then, yeah. Um, yeah, just about all of but them. But the, the difficult related. thing back then, too, from an investigative standpoint, was a lot of times these hired guns came in from the Dominican Republic, right? They yeah. came in and they whacked somebody and they t- went on the next flight back to Santo Domingo, right? A lot of times, uh, if it was a beef between two big drug dealers, they would, they would import uh, outside talent. Okay. And they stood out. I mean, as an as a anti-crime cop, he doesn't belong. Why is that? Tell me. Well, what is they it? just look different. The they walk different. different. Right? They speak different. They're, uh, I actually had a, had a uh, Hispanic cop tell me, because yeah, they're hibaros. Yeah. I'm like, hibaros? He from goes, the yeah, they're hillbillies. From the mountains. They don't fit. Yeah, they're from the mountains. The clothes are a little like, different. Oh, okay. The walk is yeah. a little different. Uh, even the, the Spanish that they speak, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of like uh, nuances to it that are different than like a New York Dominican speaking Spanish. Yeah, they don't sound like Cardi B. No, no. <laughs> um, but you know they stood out, and they're people that you want to watch. And you know what? You're walking down the street with an Intratec under your shirt. I'm gonna see it. An Intratec? You're talking about a machine gun? A machine pistol? Yeah. Yeah. And then it fires nine millimeter or forty-five, right? Depending. Yeah, on yeah. It depends on how it's uh, set up. Yeah. yeah. So you're riding around. Is it three of you in the car? Four of you? Uh, it depends. It depends on how many guys were in to work that day. Uh, you had a lot of downtime with court because we were locking so many people up. But uh, ordinarily, the night of the shooting... Uh, what, what were your tours then? We had a... Uh, it was a modified 4 to 12 tour. It was like 2, uh, two to 10.30. Okay. So 2 and, in the uh, afternoon. Yeah, which was... 1,400. Which was actually the most jumping stretch of time. It, uh, things started to slow down. Uh, right around midnight, you know, as you approach midnight. And then they picked up again, believe it or not, from like maybe 1 to 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then it went dead. But uh, you're in plain yeah, clothes. Busy. Plain clothes. I looked like uh, I used to break it up. Sometimes I'd wear a hoodie and sunglasses uh, and uh, I could pass for anybody on the neighborhood. As long as you didn't make eye contact, you could be a fly on the wall mm-hmm. and watch people. Because so many different people were coming up to that neighborhood for different purposes, yeah. right? Of all different persuasions, races, right? Yeah, yeah, it was so a mix. Uh, the, easiest, the easiest thing for me to fit in as, uh, and at the time I had one flowing head, head of rock star hair. I looked like Eddie Vedder. Um, <laughs> man, I wish I had that hair now. Um, I just looked like a white boy uh, from Jersey uh-huh. buying drugs or a construction worker. It's easy to look like a construction worker. Um, so you, Are you know, trying to buy, do hand to hands or no? You just no, nah, we didn't, observing, right? Pretty much when you're on a street set, there's a gun there. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, what experienced cops come well, to talk about a street set? You're talking about there's a corner, and on the corner, there's a couple of guys who d- deal drugs on that corner. That's their corner, so that's their set. Yeah, it's a couple more than a couple, but there's definitely a gun on the street. Usually, they used to keep it under a garbage can. Uh, under a step of a broken stoop in the wheel well of a car. Tire, right, <coughs> right on the tire. Right. And what you would do is, you know, you'd, you'd go up and down the blocks until you found one that we called it raised up. It's where everybody on the block, obviously something's going on there. You don't know the history. You don't, you don't know who's beefing with who. But if everybody on that corner is raised up and their head's on a swivel, they're looking for trouble. It's going to be some trouble. Right. So you would set yourself up where you'd have a view of that area. And sure enough, you know, you'd hear shots fired come over the radio. You guys are going on the roofs, too, or you just sitting in the car? We would go over roofs. We would go through uh, alleyways. Um, yeah, I mean, it was labyrinthine behind the building. Using binoculars? Sometimes you'd use binoculars if you were far enough away. But if you snuck in through the backyards from another uh, block and came up on the stairwell that leads down behind the building where they put the, the supers used to put the garbage cans, right. you'd be right at street level. Mm-hmm. And you could just put your hood up and just watch. You didn't need binoculars for that. Now, I know on 147th Street, they used to have lookouts on the roof. Did they have those on 162nd, too? I never encountered a lookout on, on the roof, but they're all over the street. I mean, as soon as a, a, a police car 
And unmarked cars, I mean, you jump out of an unmarked car three or four times in a the neighborhood. They know the car. <laughs> not only do they know the car, they know that car better than the blue and whites. Yeah. So pretty much the only thing you can use that car for now is to raise them up, to get them moving around. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So, and why do you want them moving around? Because that's when they're going to go for the gun. Least, leave the least amount of people in the and, corner. And then the and other, you know. the other aspect is, none of them had, none of these illegal gun owners had uh, holsters. Mm-hmm. They're tucking a big piece of iron right, right into their right. waist. Uh-huh. Now, if he has to walk, mm-hmm. a gun unbalances you. He's trying yeah. to keep it from falling out of your pants, mm-hmm. and you end up walking, and it looks like a limp, but it's not really a limp. It's a gun limp. Yeah, they're wearing it with sweatpants. Yeah, it's not like yeah, my, the, my, the, hip, constantly... my hip limp. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there's another reason why I used to, a lot of guys used to complain they didn't want to work in the rain because nothing was going on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there's a lot going on. Because every guy with a gun that's walking down the street has to jump over the puddles. Mm-hmm. The first thing he's grabbing as he jumps right, over exactly. is that gun. So I made a lot of gun collars. That's in the good. Rain. Uh, that's excellent observation. You know, yeah. like uh, yeah. I don't know if that type of observation exists anymore. So you're watching. You know? You're watching these <laughs> I guys don't know. and their body language, and you can tell just by yeah. looking at them that they got a gun on them. Just by the way they're constantly trying to fix it, adjust it, the weight of it in somebody's pants. You become keen on looking for that, right? Well, what it is is you spot the. You become suspicious. Mm-hmm. So now you look closely, mm-hmm. and you look for some other trigger to raise your suspicion to the level of uh, reasonable suspicion, reasonable cause to believe that a crime or he's possessing a weapon. Mm-hmm. At that point now, you're authorized by law to go give him a rub. Stop question the frisk. Right. A rub. Yeah, a rub. Yeah. <laughs> a toss, we used to call it a yeah. rub, a toss. A rub, a toss. <laughs> Dude, I hate when... And what are you looking for? A burner, a hot yeah. lunch? <laughs> I hate when the media refers to... Uh, stop question and frisk as stop and frisk. And they do it on purpose because they leave out 33% of what that law is. And the question part sometimes raises it higher to the probable cause, you know, and I, they do it on purpose. I want to slap them when they do that, Mm -hmm. you know, now poor, poor cops these days, I don't even know if they're using stop question and frisk anymore because it's so invasive to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You said, uh, you mentioned two things for a gun. You said burner, and the other one was... Hot lunch. I never heard hot lunch. Hot lunch is a street crime expression. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, you all adopted it, though. Hot lunch. He's got a hot lunch on you, Especially when you do a car stop. If he's in the back of the car, and I'm in the front, and he discovers a gun, if he says gun, all the guys in the car are going to take off to the races. Yeah, no. <laughs> so you use a code word, you say, I got hot lunch. And now you remember, everyone knows what that means, except the perps. They uh-huh. don't know. They think you're going to the bodega for some, you know. Well, now they know. They're going to know now. They're going to know after they I'm have sure the they put on well, it, They knew words by the time, by the the they, word. they knew by the time the 90s were over. Uh-huh. We, yeah. we, we had to change our terminology at that point. Uh-huh. So good There's to go. Good to go is another one. I remember there was always uh, jukes was a word for robbery, and I, I'm listening to these guys talk. Uh, jukes, you know, yeah, jukes, yeah. and like, and uh, I don't know what the fuck they were saying, but you start learning the words from the street when you start doing, you know, investigating robberies. Yeah, and uh, so okay, okay, so he's got a hot lunch, right? So, but these, you're talking about an observation made. You, so, at point, when you're when when you're doing the one that you're in the back of uh, the building, looking out to where the super puts the garbage. And uh, those, those you parked the car somewhere, and now you're on foot yeah. doing the observation. Yeah. And other times you're doing car stops. Are you doing a lot of car stops to get the guns? I didn't, we didn't work too much off of car stops. Uh, it was, uh, if you were looking for a gun in Washington Heights back then, it was kind of, you know, stationary was good enough. Mm-hmm. Every block was a target-rich environment. Mm-hmm. You know, what do I need to be driving around and, and stopping cars? Possibly the most dangerous confrontation you can be in. Right. Because you can't see what's going on. I just thought because of the people coming in that those were easy grabs when you see the Jersey plates, the Connecticut plates. Yeah, but I I wasn't interested in drug collars and I wasn't allowed to take them anyway. You you were looking to get the guns. All right. So this is. occasionally. That was the thing back then. uh, It was really frowned upon for anti crime to make drug arrests because of the whole corruption component. Mm. Then I think that next time Bratton came back, all of a sudden you, you like. Oh, no, forget about that. Anyone can make drug arrests. But you know, as a plainclothes guy, making a drug arrest is a pain in the ass, too. Yeah. Speaking right? of Bratton, I saw him in the street the other day. Yeah. Former uh, yes, commissioner. Yes, did you come on the show or what? 
I didn't, you know, I dropped the ball. I didn't ask him. I was actually kind of nervous. I didn't want to bother him. He lives in a, in that neighborhood. So um, I, I came up to him and I said, uh, excuse me, um, Bill, I just wanted to say that I'm retired from the job. I did 20 years. And me and my uh, my friend Bill, we got a podcast. I started plugging the podcast. I gave him a card. I said, we'd love for you to listen. And then I said, uh, oh, he said he would. And he was very kind. Um and uh, I, then I dropped the ball. I says, all right, good luck. I, well, why am I saying good luck to him for? <laughs> I should have said you were a great commissioner because yeah, yeah. he was. And uh, if he is listening, I just want you to know that, that we really appreciated your I think he was job. better the, the, the first time uh, with the Blasio. I, he looked so frustrated being the PC under the Blasio, right? Probably. Was, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I pity anyone that has to work for that moron. Uh, yeah. Poor Jimmy O'Neill. Oh, good. But, uh, you, you just couldn't have a worse boss. Although, you know what, it's pretty close with David Dinkins. It's well, you know, good. that brings us back to the story. Yeah. We're, we're talking about 1992. Uh, we're talking about you got six years on the job. The mayor at the time, this is very, very important, is Mayor David Dinkins. Tell us what it was like. I was in the academy at the time. Mm-hmm. Bill, uh, Michael, both of you worked under Bill. You were already cops. You had six years on. I don't know how many years you had on. What was it like to work? For, for uh, on, when Dinkins was mayor? Well, basically, crime was out of control, so no one minded that part of it, but he wasn't a supportive to the police. Yeah, he didn't want you doing anything he didn't about want you it doing either. Anything, yeah. um, but his, I knew he was bad news before he was even mayor. Uh, in October of 1988, two police officers were killed uh, in Manhattan, an hour and 100 blocks apart from each other. Christopher Hoban, the undercover from yep. uh, Manhattan North Narcotics, was killed during a buy on. Uh, it's in the 2-4. Yeah, I think it was 104th Street, Street. 104th in that vicinity. Yeah. And an hour later, Michael Busick basically interrupted a drug robbery uh, at 161st Street and Broadway, and he was killed. David Dinkins was the Democratic candidate for mayor, for the upcoming mayoral election. And that double funeral, which uh, took place at Our Lady of Lords in Brooklyn, instead of electing to go to that funeral. He instead went to Rikers Island to tell the pretrial detainees that he values them in this city and he was going to get them to vote. Wow. Rather than go to uh, a police, a double police funeral. Yeah, horrible. So, yeah. So I knew... Uh, and that was when he was running. Where, and he was running yeah. against who? Koch already had served his terms, right? He, uh, in the first election, he ran against Giuliani and, and, beat, and beat him. Beat okay. Yeah. Yeah. But not by much. It was a close election. Because yeah, Koch did his two terms, and then it was Giuliani against Dinkins. Koch, Koch did, I think, three terms. All right. Yeah. And then uh, it was Giuliani against Dinkins, and Giuliani mm-hmm. lost. Dinkins won. Yeah, right. but there was a lot of suspicion that uh, there was some fraud with respect to the voting. Okay. And uh, there were an awful lot of votes coming in from Washington Heights. And there weren't that many documented citizens living mm-hmm. in Washington Heights that voted for David Dinkins. So for the next election, uh-huh. uh, Giuliani got a lot of uh, grassroots support from the cops some, uh, who all worked as poll watchers. Yeah, that's and a right. lot of these, some Dominican uh, collusion. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a dumb old collusion. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Dinkins is mayor. He's not a big fan of the cops, huh? No, he hates us. He hates it. He hates but... Us. Even though he's not a fan of the cops, you're still going out there and being a damn good cop regardless. Yeah, I didn't work for him. Mm-hmm. I put my hand in the air. I made a vow. When you first came on, what was the year that you came on? 1986. And you went to the 3-4 right away? No, I went uh, my first six months, uh, and I met my wife there, actually. We were rookie cops together. Uh, I was in NSU 3. It's in the which south, covered, right? Yeah, yeah, Midtown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a st- actually, I did six to twos with Sundays and Mondays off, and I had a steady foot post on the deuce. Oh, in Times 40, Square? Yep, 42nd Street from As 8th, a rookie? As a rookie, from 8th to Broadway. That must have been something. And that right? was back when... That was rocking the deuce. Yeah, that was yeah before, you couldn't, you couldn't was swing at that Disney cat without store making a robbery. There, right? yeah, yeah, there was a Disney store there? There was, there was no Disney store. <laughs> there so. was peep shows there? Oh, man. A lot of pornographic right? theaters. Yeah, you had... Uh, then you had the... Uh, you could meet the girl of your dreams there. You could get Who some might drugs. turn out to be a dude. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. That, that was, was like a, a school for crime. People yeah. used to come from all over the city to ply their trade in Midtown, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot we of crime used to take yeah. Yeah. You know, that was the pilgrimage you took in if you lived in an outer borough. I think we were like 13. Yeah. 
Here's all the boys from my block. We all got on the train. We took the uh, into Times Square. To we buy the fake ID that got doesn't fake fool ideas. anyone. Yeah, yeah, the fake ID. Garbage. They were garbage IDs. <laughs> I don't know. But, but then we used to go to the peep shows. Yeah. And that we'll was, see. Then you became a we man. We didn't realize how dangerous it was going into Times Square yeah. back then either. Right? Well, as a rookie cop, I used to hide in the lobby of the Victory Theater across the street. And it overlooked where you went to go buy your fake ID. Okay. Uh because they also sold holsters, like really shitty holsters, but holsters for guns. Uh-huh. And you'd see these guys come in, and before they would buy the holster, they'd pull out the hand cannon see if it fit. to see if it fit the holster. <laughs> so I'd be like, all right, him. And then he'd walk wait out, and I'd hook him up. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, I made my first three gun collars You're like a that. rookie. Yeah. You're a rookie right now. Yeah. yeah. You're just fresh out of the academy. Yeah. How do you even know about guns? And who taught you about that? I grew up in the city, brah. I know no, a lot I mean, about you had, guns. You had this thing where you wanted to get the guns off the street right away, even as a rookie. Uh, guns are sexy collars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good for you, you know, man. God bless you. It was the, like, the deuce was bad news back then. I mean, no, I know just another guy that used that same technique, Walter Neville. Did you know mm-hmm, him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He told me he used to do the mm-hmm. same exact mm-hmm. thing. And he, I mean, he made Oh, yeah. I didn't invent the tactic. He made about it was a lot of guns. Okay, I get it. You get to a precinct. You got a couple years on the belt. Somebody starts showing you. No, you right out of the right out of the gate, you're positioning yourself right there in Times Square. You're picking people well, off, buying hostess. The, the other the other advantage that I had is I was I was an active cop. Right Where did you grow job. up? Uh, Ridgewood in Queens. Okay, borderline of Brooklyn and Queens. Where'd you go to high school? St. Francis Prep. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, cool. I went to St. John's Prep. Ooh, that was Monte Cristi. Yeah, it was Monte Cristi. I was the first year of St. John's Prep. Oh, okay, cool. All right, cool. so cool. I, I, yeah, Two I know who you Catholic are. Catholic boys. Were either you guys altar boys? Uh, I went to boarding school, so yeah, I was uh, about a couple of weeks, and I got kicked off for cursing. Uh, I I was beaten and cursed out and chased away in seventh grade. What uh, from, from from being an altar boy? Yeah, I had the mark of Satan, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. Senior Ronahan didn't like me, and consider, guess what? Consider yourself blessed. Guess what? You don't get to hit me. Yeah, I'll do something else. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your beating and I'll take my father's beating when I get home, but right. you don't get to hit me. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, okay, so uh, put us back to uh, Times Square. You know, yeah. Picking off people, buying hostas and taking mm-hmm. their hand cannons out and trying it in the hosta. Mm-hmm. And you're making your first gun collars right out of the academy. I'm making gun collars. I'm making robbery collars. What do the bosses collars? think of a kid who's doing that? We got to get him the hell out of Manhattan South. That's what they think. Because, <laughs> I mean, it really is unusual. Yeah. I mean, they, you were like... Most most rookies aren't doing that. They're, they're trying to write a parking summons. I worked with a handful of guys who were heavy hitters like me, and they right basically the and they went and they went. Uh, handful of them went to the three four with me. That's because the training detective was Sammy Gribben, who was an old three four cop, and he said, "You don't belong in Midtown. You belong uptown." Uh-huh. So we we followed Sammy because you were uh, rough around the edges. You were yeah yeah, and then a handful of guys went to Brooklyn North. Um, you know. The guys that were rubbing people for guns as uh-huh. rookies, mm-hmm. the the bosses in Midtown South, Midtown North, and the Seventeenth Precinct they didn't like it. Didn't really want you yeah. there, mm-hmm. you know. They wanted doormen. Yeah, yeah. They wanted yeah. nice uniforms. Yeah. They didn't want you uh, interrupted their tour of duty. You know. Well. Well, it's political over there. You gotta, yeah. you, you're gonna if you're gonna really toss people and rub people. Uh, <laughs> this sounds funny, rubbing, yeah. rubbing people. The, you, you're gonna have to rub people that might actually have a job and might be able to make a complaint and 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 uh, you know somebody. Mm. You know, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff when you're uptown. You yeah, know? you know what? The people I was rubbing on the deuce, you don't have to worry about jobs. No. Yeah, but that, yeah, you're talking about one specific area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They and then weren't if nothing, from Manhattan. They were yeah. from the Bronx. They were from Brooklyn. Queens, Queens, Brooklyn. Queens, but this yeah. of, this class crime. that you came out with. So you were one of the people, like right off the bat, they said, "Oh, we got this. We know we can put this guy somewhere. He wants to be busy." Well, no, no, no. It didn't go down like that. I, uh, you're in the academy. They give you three choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might as well crumple that up and throw it in the garbage because nobody's looking at it. However, I had an uncle um, who was a sergeant in Major Case, and he said, "Where do you want to go?" I was like, "Well, I'm hearing good things about Midtown." You know, let me go uh, see what that's like. So he puts me there. And I do my six months there. And uh, I'm killing him. I'm making was it NSU or FTU? It's an, they didn't call it FTU. It was NSU, was Neighborhood NSU. Stabilization Unit. And uh, 
I, and I never worked in the North. I never worked in the 17th. I did the whole six month on 42nd Street. Right. And uh, it was coming to an end, and it was time for the permanent precinct uh, assignment. And my uncle comes up to me and says, where do you want to go? I can get you in uh, Midtown North. I'm like, nah, I don't want to go to Midtown North. Mm-hmm. I want to stay in Manhattan because I know the court system now. I know the DAs. Mm-hmm. I want to go where I can be the most busy. I'm hearing good things about the 3-4. And he laughs. He goes, you don't need me to get to the 3-4. You, <laughs> you can use the precinct groom to get there. I was like, all right, Uncle Jack, put me up in the 3-4. He goes, I'll do it. Uh-huh. But you got to promise me. If your Aunt Kay asks, you got yourself in trouble, and this is where they sent you. I had nothing to do with it. Oh my God. I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. No sweat. So that's how I ended uptown. So you're uptown, and, uh, and how long did it take before you get to, uh, get up to anti-crime? Let's see. Um, if I had a guess, I'd say six months. No, no. <laughs> there were a lot of real good cops yeah. out there. Uh, and guys with some time. Um, you know, who were on the list to go before you. I did, uh, I think I did a year of the nine squad shot, if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, it's rotating shifts. How and was then, patrol up there? <clears throat> it was berserk. Um, day tours, you're not going anywhere because of the traffic. Four to twelves, a lot of activity, a lot going on. There is a lot, a lot of, people of traffic. On the streets. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. I still go to see my grandma. Oh, it's impossible. It's impossible. You know, I remember I was in the 2-4 during this time. Mm. And I remember I, you know, a couple times I'd flown up to the three four, and they had told me that on the um, the C squad, forty percent of all the cops that were doing four to twelves had been in shootings. Yeah, yeah, that's, which that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's about so right. four out of ten guys had been in shootings. How many precincts across the city could you get a statistic like that? And it was like, yeah, you better be ready when you're on patrol that you may have to shoot somebody, yeah, you know, yeah. or get shot at, you know. That was the uh, the ninth what uh, the two weeks of days, two weeks of nights, yeah, one like week that. Midnight tour um, that you were doing. I did that for about a year, and then I had the opportunity to go to steady late tours, midnights. Yeah, and steady late tours. That was an excellent tour to work for a working cop. Yeah, fewer bosses, mm-hmm. because uh, as any working cop will tell you, the greatest detriment to police work is police supervision. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> It's true. And you had basically everybody that was uh, that was working on midnights. They were businessmen, and their side business was arrests. They were making collars. They were looking for bad guys, and they were looking to go to court in the morning. And you had you you made your most overtime working late tours, so uh, it was a, it was a very business like approach. And everybody handled their business, and uh, and because it was a steady tour, and everybody knew everybody, we were very tight, and it was uh, it was a good environment to work. You making gun collars then? Oh, left and right. It's, nice. um, my last partner on late tours uh, ended up being my partner in, uh, in anti-crime also, Tommy McPartland, uh, legendary gun guy. Uh, joke would go around that I had metal detectors for hands. <laughs> okay. Tommy McPartland had ESP. He was amazing. He'd spot a guy from a half a block away and say, that guy. Uh-huh. And you get up on him, and sure enough, he had a burner on him. Oh, wow. wow. So Tommy actually just retired. He was the, uh, he was the lieutenant. He was the CEO of the uh, Firearms Investigation Unit, hmm. doing the undercover gun buys. Wow. So, he just probably met him. Finally packed it in. Probably. Because probably. I, was a detective. I was doing the, the training for detectives, and they used to come and speak at the academy, um, our homicide course. Yeah. So um, you're in anti-crime. You got six years on. Mm-hmm. And what tour were you doing that day? Uh, I was doing the, the anti-crime 4 to 12, the 2.30 to 10.30, like that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. What brings you to 162nd Street over there? Uh, Is it St. Nicholas? Sun's not down yet. Uh, Is it St. Nicholas? Obviously, yeah. St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas. It's where St. Nicholas and Amsterdam crisscross. It's St. Nicholas's at the top of the block, which I know now, but unfortunately... The day of that shooting, I didn't know it well enough, but we'll get to that. Um, we're basically taking a tour of the precinct, and it's blisteringly hot. It had rained a little earlier in the tour, like that real humidity rain. And now it's just it's just blazing hot. It's got to be, it feels like 170 degrees out there with the humidity. 
And but you got the AC on in the car, right? No, of course not. You got the windows open to hear the gunshots. <laughs> Just enough so that the tinted windows are covering your face, but you can hear. Um, and uh, I see there's the traffic's not moving. You come to a standstill. We're on St. Nick heading How many south. guys in the car? There's three of us. There's me, McPartland's driving, and Brad Asani's in the back seat. So you're you uh, passenger seat? Pa- yeah, front passenger seat. The and, recorder. Uh, yeah, you don't record much, <laughs> but whatever. So uh, <clears throat> I see this guy. He's wearing, first of all, he's wearing a, a heavy black sports jacket. It's 170 degrees out. Uh-huh. It's inappropriately dressed. And he keeps grabbing the, the front lapel of the jacket and pulling it over the middle of his waist. And you can tell he's raised up. He's bouncing around. He's looking. He's walking back and forth. He's looking both ways. He's... You know, he looked coked up to me. Turns out he was. But in any event, I can see there's something really big under that jacket. I don't know what it is yet, but my guess is it's a burner. So uh, since I made the spot, and I looked the least like a cop in the team, Tommy says, what do you want to do? I'm like... You still got the long hair? Yeah, I got the long hair. Uh, ponytail. Yeah, I was wearing a ponytail that day. Um... I said, go up a block and drop me off. I'm going to circle back around, and I'm going to set up on the corner and keep my eye on the guy. They were going to circle around and come up from Broadway. Now, the car, uh, it was a locomotion car. My anti-crime team was the drug dealers and the the bad guys all called us locomotion because of a sticker we had on the back window. It's actually a surfboard wax, locomotion. But they identified the car. It was a a big behemoth of a... uh, Chevy Caprice. And that called the local. Every time we came on a block, we were local motion. So we're going to use the car now to flush the guy in my direction. Because mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen, right? right he's going right. to walk. He's going to walk away from the threat. Yeah, that wasn't such a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the car hits the corner, and I hear Bajando, Agua, Bodicia, local motion. All of these alarms are going up, and the guy now. Tucks down into, into his waistband, turns around, and he starts walking toward the building on the corner. I was like, oh, shit. Now, I haven't seen my partners come up the block yet, but I got to grab him before he gets into that building because he gets into the building, he's gone. Right. And I get him uh, right at the doorway. I have my shield out, and I grab him, and I said, Policia no se mueve. And he gives me the best forearm I ever got in my life right in the throat. But I hang on. And he's a big fucker. He's uh, about 230 pounds, taller than me. He's, uh, he basically looked like Sammy Sosa. Because I got the creeps the first time I saw Sammy Sosa. It's like, I thought I took care of that problem a couple of years ago. <laughs> so uh, he backs up, and now we're in the, uh, in the first hallway in the building. And we're fighting. And I go over the radio. I don't know where I am. I didn't expect to be in a building, so I didn't bother getting the address of this one. So I put over 162 in Amsterdam. I'm not at 162 in Amsterdam. I think I am, but I'm not. Uh, Now we end up fighting. And we end up falling through the... You're in the vestibule of this building. Well, now we fall into the inner hall. And it looks... It's got 15-foot-high marble ceilings. It looks like a mausoleum. Are there apartments that are, are... They're upstairs. There's no apartments on the first floor. I don't believe there's any first floor apartments. Because a lot of these buildings have apartments on the first floor. So yeah, but I don't think fo- this one did. Uh, everything is above because it's it, the store is on the corner, and that's basically got the whole first floor. So this floor. is just a lobby. Yeah, yeah, there, pretty much. Elevator in it. Probably mailboxes, too? No elevator. Um, no elevator. But when, you get in, when I get into now the marble enclosure or the hallway, it looks like a mausoleum, which is fitting. Because I didn't think I was getting out of there alive. I'm fighting this guy trying to get his gun out of his waistband. And he's basically kicking the shit out of me. I end up getting him on the ground and we get next to the wall. And I put over my last transmission. And I still don't have the location right. Cops are screaming over the radio. Where the fuck are you? I don't know. But I'm fighting with this guy. And, and you're he, going over the radio while you're fighting with him. Hmm? You're still going over the radio while well, you're fighting Well, I lose with him. the radio at that point. He knocks it out of my hand. 
So now it's laying on the ground, and I just hear it squawking. And now he's got his gun out in his hand. And he hits, he basically swings it at me, and he just misses me, and I jump back. But I grab him, and now we're wrestling again. And he manages to break free, and he runs to the back toward the stairwell. And I grab him just as he's getting to the stairs and yank him and turn around, and now I get hit right in the mouth with his gun. Oof. Now, keep in mind, this is five minutes of fighting with him when it finally becomes a gunfight. And people in this building, now they must be aware, for five minutes of fighting, everybody's looking out the door. No door to look out. So the, there's so the, no so view. So it's all full of shit. There's no view from any of the apartments into that lobby. That's you would have to come down the stairs to actually see anything. Right. So that's interesting. Keep going. So I grab his hand, and I'm pulling the gun away and holding it away, but he's... He's slick with sweat and blood, some of it his, some of it mine. Uh, and I'm losing grip on the gun. And as it came up, it basically I saw it coming up in my face again. And I drew and I uh, we punched my gun out and I fired once. And he spun, like instantly. And as he was spinning and his body was turning, I see the gun coming up on the other side. And I saw a second one, which also strikes him. Where'd you hit him? The first one was point blank in the middle of his chest, perforated his, uh, his uh, I think his aorta, mm-hmm. if I remember. The so that was a fatal shot, it. probably. He was going to die from that no matter yes, what. Yes. Yeah. I blew his, but I don't know that. Right. And the other thing is, and it was one of the things that had to be explained to the grand jurors, because when they hear multiple shots, they don't understand how quickly one comes on in the back of the other. Sure. The, the two shots, and I actually demonstrated in the grand jury, that quick. And that was the end of the gunfight. Right. He hits the floor. He drops his gun and it clatters uh, across the floor. And the first thing I do, <laughs> because I've seen guns you disappear, grab, grab the gun. <laughs> I grab his gun yeah. and I put it in my waist. That's right. I holster my own. And now I'm going to handcuff because that's what you got to do. Right. I know I put him down, but it's, it's time to cuff him. And, but I'm so exhausted I can't get his arm out from underneath his, his, his body. I'm like, ah, screw this. So I front cuffed him. And I still don't know where I am. And people are freaking out on the radio mm-hmm. trying to find me. I'm like, I'm going to be in here all week if I don't uh, put over an address. <laughs> and I don't like it here right now. So I better go get the radio. So I find the radio in the hallway. And I try and put my location over again. And I'm wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear my partner, Tommy McPartland, yell, Mike, where the fuck are you? I was like, fuck, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I walk out now to the front of the building, and I open the door a crack, and I look up, and I'm like, oh, okay, 505 West 162. Wow. And I'm putting that over on my way back to the body, or to the perp, because I don't know he's dead. He actually might not be yet. Uh, but as I'm walking back to him, I put over the address, lobby, I got a perp down, roll the bus. And now I'm just, now the adrenaline kicks in, and I'm like shaking out, covered in blood. I don't know this, but when the first two uniforms come in the door, Johnny D'Alessandro and uh, Billy Nolan, great cops. Uh, Johnny was a first grade detective. Billy retired yeah, as no, a sergeant. I worked with him. He was in the 3-4 squad when I was in homicide. Yeah, yeah. yeah Johnny's yeah. a great detective. Uh, but him and Billy show up, and they come in, and they run right away, come over, and they grab me, and they start trying to strip my clothes off. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? They thought you were hit. They're like, where are you shot? Where are you shot? I'm like, I'm not shot. Mm-hmm. And then I look and I got blood all over me. I'm like, oh, that's his. <laughs> and I'm like, this is his gun. Mm-hmm. And now everybody else starts coming in. And they're like, come on, let's go. And they grabbed me and they threw me in a radio car and took me right to Columbia Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. For uh, At the time, we didn't say ring in an R.E.S. Titanus, titanus isn't it called? Tin- T-I-T-I-N-U-S. Tinnitus. 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 Like that, yeah. yeah, but they didn't say that back yeah. then. In 92, it was still trauma. Right. You admitted it was trauma. What's tinnitus? It's ringing, ringing in, in your ears. ears. Okay. That's all. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they end up uh, bringing me to uh, Columbia. And uh, turns out the reason why my partners didn't see where I had gone is half the way up the block... A guy with a 357 is chasing another guy across 162nd Street and practically runs into the car. 
So now they think, they hear me go uh, putting over my, my 85 before it was a 13, and they think that it's involved with me, and they bail and they chase this guy, and they take him all the way up to St. Nick, they make the left, and they get as far as 163rd Street when they tackle him, and they end up pulling the gun off him. Well, that's the point where it becomes a 13, and I'm freaking out on the radio. And they were like, fuck this guy. And they basically let him go, put the gun in their pocket, and then came around the block looking for me. And they still couldn't find me until they put the address wow. over. But they were, uh, I mean, you fuck can hear the panic. <laughs> this guy's in the, in the lobby with yeah. a guy with a gun. Yeah, There's another scary, guy running down the street with a gun. That's a scary thing. Yeah, pretty much. How long did it take um, after that shooting for it to become, you know, what we later knew as the Washington Heights riots. Well, well one second. Before we... Let's go back to uh, the, the one thing that... They, put, they brought you to to the trauma, right? Columbia yeah, Press. The, the, so the, the emergency room. They got you out of the scene. Right. Right? They pulled you out of that scene, mm-hmm. which was a, really turns out to be a blessing in disguise. Right? It really wouldn't have mattered. It was kind of contained. So right Nobody there, was going in there. So right the there, we don't know anything that's going on yet. This didn't even start brewing. The rumors that Bill was about to lead into, yeah. all the talking that's going to go on. How long did that take? Hours? A day? Middle of July 4th. So it took about a day. But this, this was handled as obviously a police shooting. Yeah. And probably the Manhattan North Homicide Squad. They were involved. In conjunction with mm-hmm. Internal Affairs. Investigated this, right? Internal Fez wasn't involved yet. The squad basically. Well, they used to have a shooting team uh, that investigated police shootings. I don't shootings, think they right? had it then. They didn't have it. I don't yet. think okay. they started the shooting team. Because look, I, I was in homicide. And they called it, and they called it the force team. Yeah, yeah. but I was in homicide for almost ten years, and we investigated police shootings. Yeah. But they used to have internal affairs yeah. come with us. Yeah. And basically just watch what we were doing because they didn't have a fucking clue yeah. what we were and doing. If, and if know? they had information, they weren't giving it to you anyway. No. Whatever. Um, but this had to be investigated as a, Well, it as starts a out shooting. as a squad yeah. case. It's yeah. a police but it, also, it starts off as, as just a police shooting at this point. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're in the trauma? There's, well, I'm at the hospital for a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, the duty inspector turns out to be Camp PC. <laughs> IAB, yeah. later on, the chief later of IAB. On, yes. yeah, yeah. But Camp Easy's the duty inspector, and he comes uh, he comes to look at me in the hospital, and he basically has me strip, and he's, he's just checking my bruises and stuff. Yeah, he's and, foolish. That guy's a- Well, he actually, believe it or not, he testified on my behalf yeah. in the civil trial, and he was good for me. Yeah. So the only good thing I'll ever say about yeah, it. Yeah, no, he wasn't, you know, uh, he didn't have a good reputation. He was uh, He was a bad guy, and he knew where the bodies were buried, yeah. and he got away with a lot of shit he shouldn't he have been allowed to get away with. He was a cheese eater from way back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, the investigation now goes back to the uh, 34th precinct. Mm-hmm. Crime scene comes. They check my gun out. Uh, recovered spent shells. Uh, take the pictures. Everything's everything. Uh, you're instructed by the union. You know, you're not going to make an official statement yet. We had the 48-hour rule yeah. back then. 48-hour right? rule. They lost that, though. Didn't they lose that? It's still kind of uh, it's kind of obeyed in in abeyance. Well, if the, the DA's D- office, DA doesn't, re- yeah. if the DA's office is going to yeah. read your Miranda, you don't talk. Yeah. But if they're going to act like, oh yes, just tell your story, you know, I I think I'm going to yeah, hold gonna off. Yeah. We're going to wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when I leave that night, and it was probably about two o'clock in the morning when I finally. Well, it might have been later than two o'clock in the morning when I leave to go home. Huey Drain is the catching detective up in the three four squad. Great old guy. And uh, Huey says, uh, you're going to be okay, kid. It looks like a bunt. I was like, okay, Huey, thanks a lot. It meant a lot coming from Yeah, him. sure. It's a real experienced guy. And uh, so I go home thinking it's a bunt. I go to sleep, and uh, my girlfriend comes over, checks on me, later my wife. We were engaged at the time. And uh, she goes out shopping, and she actually buys me a new hooded long sleeve T-shirt for anti-crime use, not knowing that I've worked the last hour That's of right. anti-crime in my life. Uh-huh. Career is over. So, yeah. It's a very nice shirt, though. Now you need some suits. Uh-huh. So she comes, she wakes me up. We're going to go out to a friend's barbecue out in Seaford. And so we're out there. It's nice, uh, hanging out, watching the sun go down. And she gets... Uh, 
Janet was in SP-10 in uh, the 13th Precinct. And they, they actually were the first cops on the job, uniform cops that were given cell phones. Because they used to get calls from the desk to go handle right, these right, past right. complaints. Mm -hmm. So she always had this cell phone with mm -hmm. her. Her partner, Pete, who actually worked that day, didn't take off, calls her cell phone. We're at the barbecue. Mm -hmm. And she says, and uh, Pete, Pete West, God rest his soul, passed away last year. Great guy. Pete says... Uh, was he a cop in the 3 -0? No, he was a sergeant in, uh, in Brooklyn South. I think he finished up in the 6 -0. Oh, okay. uh, But he was a Manhattan South cop. Um, but Pete, uh, Pete says, uh, Janet, why uh, am I on a rooftop in Washington Heights and your boyfriend is being burned in effigy? Oh, my God. So I was like, what? She's like, yeah, they're, they're burning a dummy, saying it's you. I'm like, give me the fucking phone. Let me talk to him. That was the first inkling I had that that bunt yeah. that had a seam in the carpet and gone into left field. <laughs> so, so, so I was like, I better call somebody. So I end up calling the three four squad. I get Jerry Giorgio, and uh, thank God, Big Jerry. Daddy. He got rest his soul. He passed yeah. away last year too. Rest in peace. Jerry was uh, Jerry was my mentor. He was the guy I wanted to grow up to be. Yeah, he spoke at the homicide course too. Amazing. I'm actually. Uh, Sidebar, I'm actually going to be speaking at the homicide course this year. Oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah I'm looking forward to it. Watch. Yeah. So, but um, he says, listen, it's, it's a lot of bullshit in the air. They're rioting out there in the streets. He says, the drug dealers are pushing this thing. He goes, it's all make-believe. Give it a day or two. It'll all calm down. You just, you're going to go sick and you're going to stay home. And don't worry about it. Eddie Mahoney will take care What was the protocol back then after a shooting? When you got, when you got involved in the shooting. Well, how long were you supposed to stay home? When can you go back? Well, they took your guns, right? Mm -mm. They didn't take your guns. No, they actually made a mistake with it. Um, they were supposed to take my guns. Not only did they give me my guns, my guns back, they gave me the spent shells. Oh, wow. And I was like, and I said to the guys wow. in the crime scene, I'm like, I think these are supposed to go to the lab. Yeah, I think so. And they're like, I'm not. That's no problem. It's just fine. They're yours. Keep them as a souvenir. I'm like, okay. I didn't keep them as a souvenir. I kept them on my dresser top because I knew they were going to be gonna needed. Ask you. <laughs> Somebody's going to want these things. So, uh, did you have a, a Glock back then? No, no. I. Uh, I had the Ruger 38. Okay. Very nice gun. Because it was uh, said that the Glock didn't, um, forensically, they, they couldn't really read the, uh, you know, the uh, the rifle. The rifle. The rifle because of the barrels. Yeah. I don't know. But with, you know, the brass catcher with the brass, that's right. got to be readable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brass catcher is a, um, there's an extractor machine inside a nine millimeter that makes the same exact mark every time on a brass sh shell that it ejects from the gun. And it's scientific. There's a machine called Brass Catcher, and it can positively identify the brass from the exact 9mm it was fired from, just to give that scientific explanation to our millions of listeners. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.